0: I delight to be with you this morning. If you'll turn in your Bible, let me invite you to consider love from 1 Corinthians 13. Now, um, with Pastor Paul away working on his degree, his doctor degree, and we're thankful that he was able to do that, um, I'm filling in. One of the advantages of being in uh, Pastor Sagan's shoes is week by week, he typically walks you through a book of the Bible. And in that, once he's picked the book, uh, the texts pick him week after week. He he doesn't get to skip and avoid texts he doesn't want to preach, or just sit on hobby horses, which is always a temptation of a pastor. And so, uh, but when I show up, you might be tempted to think because I just preach very periodically that I have come with either something that I know really well and am good at and just have mastered myself, and I'm bringing it before you, which if you really knew me, you would know is not the case. Or you might be tempted to think that I have really thought a lot about you, and I've identified this particular trait that you need to work on. And as we turn to a passage on love, I want you to understand that neither is the case. I am no expert. And this sermon is directed as much to me as to anybody. But I want you to consider 1 Corinthians 13, the subject of loving our friends and our enemies. And as we approach the text, let me just say one or two more things before we read it. I want you to think about how we should read this passage. Uh, this is a passage familiar to you if you've been to a wedding. And perhaps I preached this at your wedding. Uh, it's often preached, and what you have before you is a a happy couple uh, who are about to be joined for a lifetime, and the minister stands and reads, and they're about to say their vows, and and you read this passage on love, and and usually what's happening is is the, the, the bride and groom are abounding in affection for one another, and they hear The words of what love is and they're saying to themselves, oh and I love you that much and you love me that much and it's just so wonderful that we're getting married and we're going to celebrate our love every day. And it's endearing and wonderful, but that isn't how the Corinthians heard this passage. And it's not, perhaps as we work through it, how we'll hear it. It's more like that scene in The Sound of Music when Maria... Do you remember this movie when you all, everybody in this room has surely seen The Sound of Music, and if you haven't, you must go out and watch it. Maria arrives as the governess for the Von Trapp family, and the kids, accustomed to many uh, nannies and governesses, have have grown weary, and uh, they they pick on them mercilessly, and they pick on Maria when she arrives. They just do all kinds of horrible things to her, culminating when they put a pine cone on her chair as she arrives at the dinner table, which she sits on. Uh, and makes an exclamation, which startles the captain. Well, immediately following that, what you and I would have done is we would have become irate, but she, with the sweetest uh, expression, her mouth drips honey over the children, and she tells them how wonderful it has been to be welcomed by them, to be to feel so loved and accepted. And, and, uh, and she goes on and on about their virtues and kindnesses. And, and meanwhile, the kids begin to one by one weep and flee the table because their conscience can't bear it. Because she is describing what they ought to have been that is so strikingly different from what they really are that it's painful and it comes as a rebuke. Well, that is how this text would have been heard by the Corinthians, coming as it does after 12 chapters of the Apostle Paul, identifying all the problematic areas of their church life and their failures to love one another. And then he says, this is how you're supposed to love. And so what I want to say to you today is that this may be slightly painful. It ought to, by the Spirit of God, convict us. As he describes what love ought to be, we will see that we are unloving. And we'll wonder, how can I be loved like this? How can I ever become loving like this? And in that light, let me invite you to hear God's word. All things, hopes, all things, endures, all things, love never ends. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. I want you to think about how messy families are, how messy the church can be. Any close community is going to be messy, and love will be hard. I want you to think about the three things that Paul says about love here. He he talks about and describes the importance of love. He describes the activities of love. And then I I want the third question to be this. How can I get this kind of love? What's the source of this love? In in the first place, notice in in verses 1 to 3, the Apostle Paul starts by majoring on the major. He says love is the most important thing. In verse 1, he says You know, it's possible for us to see God use us to do great things. You can have, he says, you can have extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit like prophecy and tongues and words of knowledge. And whatever those things are, and that's not the purpose of this sermon, whatever those things are, he says, without love, those things are just useless noise. Without love, I'm not even a Christian, Love is the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. Without love, I'm not even a Christian. He says, though God may do great things with me and through me. In verse 2, he says, you can attempt great things for God, but without love, it's meaningless. We can, he says, have the kind of faith that moves mountains, that does impossible things, that sees impossible things happen. But without love for my neighbor, he says, the faith to do miracles means nothing. In, in verse 3 he says, you know, sometimes people give away everything they have. And it gains, he says, nothing. Perhaps they do it from vanity. Perhaps they do it from fear. Many have given away a lot because they hoped that they would avoid a future condemnation by, what, by the work of giving. Or they hoped to purchase heaven by what they've done. But he says it gains nothing in the sight of God to do that. In fact, he goes so far as to say we can be a martyr and give our bodies to be burned. The idea being that you would have suffered persecution because of your zeal and witness about the truth. You can do all that, he says. But you could be, instead of a martyr for Jesus, you could be a martyr for your own glory, posing as a a hero to others. So whether you do missions overseas or ministry at the University of Arkansas or in your own home, make tremendous sacrifices for others, he says none of those things, ultimately, without love, mean anything. There's a lot of good people do because they know others are watching because our pride wants recognition. The best things done with that very self-interested motive is, as one pastor put it, but a damnable good work. Everybody else would say, isn't it wonderful what they're doing? And God would say, but you, you don't have love for Christ. You love yourself and that's why you did those things. You see, There's nothing that matters more than love between people. There is nothing that matters more. The whole weight of the Bible is against you, not just this text. If you think anything else matters more than love between you and others, the kind of love he's describing. Jesus said it this way in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. The Apostle Peter, in his writings, chapter 4, verse 8, says, Above all, above all, keep on loving one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Again, Paul in the book of Romans says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the whole law. The whole weight of the Bible lands on our shoulders and says this is what matters most between us. And clearly what Paul is describing here is not simply an emotion or even an affection, but he's describing a way of living motivated by having been loved by Jesus. Of course, he's talking to Christians. If you've been loved by Jesus, he says, this is the way you express that. So it's an important question. To pause and reflect on this first point about the importance of love. If this is the one thing that matters most, above all, is it our life goal, our one, I'm sorry about this, I did it all the way through the first service, is it our one great ambition to be a good lover of others? Because that's what we're supposed to be. And we know that people are hungry to be loved. You, you know the famous name of the atheist Madeline Murray O'Hare. Who uh, when she disappeared her diaries were found. And she, they discovered as they read them. That she had written over and over again throughout her diaries. She wrote won't somebody somewhere love me. It, it's what we all long for. It's also what God designed us to both receive And give. So, speaking to Christians as the Apostle Paul is here, assuming that you've tasted something of the love of God to you, live a life of love, Paul says. Let it dominate your relationships with others. Well, everybody's for it, nobody's against it, but but what is he talking about when he's describing love? What is genuine love? That's the second thing I want you to think about. He describes it in terms of its activities. And though he describes it in terms of 15 characteristics or so, I want to just highlight the first seven. What is love? What does it mean to love others? And here, I think we'll all see that we're all very unloving. Notice the first thing that he says about love. Love, he says, verse 4, is long-suffering. It, it, some translations say patient. But the idea is that, that you have been injured by somebody in such a way that you have to suffer long with them. It's going to require you to be so close to somebody that you would taste being hurt by them. And that's hard. That kind of intimacy is hard. It requires you to be vulnerable and close to people. C.S. Lewis says to love it all is to be vulnerable. He says love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy says Lewis, at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from the dangers of love is hell. To love is to be vulnerable, to have to suffer long with people who are close enough to you to hurt you. That's the first thing. This is what the Corinthians didn't do very well. In chapter 6, he has to rebuke them because they had harmed one another. And instead of working it out or even seeking the help of a brother in the Lord and the church to help them work it out, they begin to sue one another in the courts to get what's theirs. And the Apostle Paul says, wouldn't it be better even to suffer wrong for the sake of a brother than to sue him Before the watching world. That's what Jesus did for us. And so he says, you've got to suffer long. And so the Bible says, you are going to be broken hearted. And it's those very people who disappoint you that you're called to love. And I would say to you, welcome to your family. Isn't this what family is? Look, it's always going to feel easier to love your friends and anybody outside of your own home than it is to love those you live with. Why? Because you live with them. And they live with you. And you're close enough, often enough, to simply irritate each other. Loving your family feels harder than loving anybody else sometimes. And that is the place where God calls you to love, that first community. That's the first thing. Love, he says, is long-suffering. And then he says the second thing, love is kind. And the root of this verb means useful, to be useful. It's, it's the opposite of passivity. It's the activity of presenting yourself to others in such a way as to be of service to them. And so it's not the motto of the surgeon whose motto, we all hope, is first do no harm. It's not, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to step back and, and stay away, lest I do any harm. It's, I'm going to move forward and aim to help. Love doesn't think it's done anything simply by locking itself up in its own world. And I want to say to two kinds of people this morning that, that love means moving towards others. To those who have been hurt, the first kind of person, you're long-suffering with somebody who's hurt you. It's, it's the most understandable temptation to say, that's it, I'm done. You know, just live and let live. You've hurt me one too many times, and though we have to be near each other, I'm, I'm just going to try to avoid you, and I hope that you'll try to avoid me. The Apostle Paul says, no. Add to long-suffering usefulness for their good. And I want to say as well to men in the congregation who, as children of Adam, who from the very beginning stood by and didn't protect and defend his wife Eve, but simply was passive, this passage calls us to do more. That love means not simply saying to our neighbors, you know, if you'll just lock yourself up in your little box over there and keep your grass mowed, then I'll just lock myself up in my little box over here and keep my grass mode, and we can wave at one another every now and then. Love doesn't say, I'm uninterested, just don't hurt me, and I'll try not to hurt you, and we'll all get along. Love moves forward to serve, and how many wives would hunger for their husbands to not just live passively with them, but to move forward and serve them. Because that's what love does. Thirdly, love, he says, does not envy. He says, love does not envy. How do you know when you envy? When you feel bad as others succeed. When they receive what's good, you think to yourself, I wish that was mine. I wish that wasn't theirs. Right? So your friends get straight A's and scholarships to the university and you're paying full tuition and you're mad. Or somebody else got a sorority bid that you thought ought to have come your way. You're a far better person than them. Or you just live in a family that you despise and you wish that you had so-and-so's mom and dad because yours aren't up to the task. Love, he says, isn't like that. It doesn't envy the good that God has done to others and begrudge them it. Love sees the talents and the abilities and the blessings that God has given to others and love is glad. You know, there's a phrase in the Gospels where Jesus instructs us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and it is far easier to weep with those who we But to actually glory in God's abundant generosity to somebody else, now that's hard to do, but that's what love does. So what do we need to love and not envy? We need to embrace the providence of God in our lives, that our Father in heaven, in his wisdom, has been good to us. He has been as good to us As he will ever be. Because he's already given us Jesus, his son. He's not keeping any good thing back from us. Though we scratch our heads and don't understand. But because he's given his son, everything else he's given as well. For our well-being. Because he loves us. And that's why we have the car that we have. And not the new one somebody else has bought. That's why friends will get engaged and will wish it was us and we'll be mad that it's them, but that we don't need to be that way. If We would see that the Father has us right where he wants us, right now, because he loves us. Now, when you are on the other side of the equation and everything good seems to have come your way, the Apostle Paul says, well, then in that case, love doesn't boast. That's his next thing. It doesn't flaunt it and throw it in the faces of others. You're not, root meaning of the word here, you're not a windbag. It's what he's describing. Always shooting off your mouth to know that, to let others know that you think you're better than them or that you got everything good that they didn't get. You know how this works. Uh, I think it's been described up here before. But it certainly describes me. I'm sitting in a room with campus ministers a week or so ago at staff training every year we get together, and we're swapping stories. Stories about life and crazy things that kids do or strange and weird and amazing things that happen on campus. And while I'm listening to the stories of others, usually I'm waiting for a break in the conversation so that I can jump in with my better story. I want to top that. Why do I want to do that? Because I love to hear the sound of my own voice, which is, by definition, what a windbag is in so many ways. Why are we always boasting about ourselves as if what we have, we deserve? The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians, everything you have, you have been given What do you have that hasn't been God's gift to you? And if it's been God's gift to you, then your only boast is in the Lord and use what he's given to serve others. And so he talks about not boasting, but behind the heart of the boaster is arrogance, pride. And that's his fifth thing, that love is not, he says. It's not arrogant. It's not filled with self-conceit. And that doesn't mean, as so often is thought, I think, it does not mean that what we all really need to go out and do is commit ourselves to the task of running ourselves down, despising ourselves for the talent or wit or beauty or graces that we have. That would be just as wrong. It would, in fact, be the same fundamental sin as pride. The arrogant person, this is the reason, the arrogant person is guilty of discounting the image of God in others. So he simply tramples them. But the self-loather is guilty of discounting the image of God in themselves. Love does neither. It welcomes blessing wherever it's found. And so he says love is not arrogant about God's gifts. And in the sixth place, love isn't rude. Notice how he puts it. He says love is not rude. And so on the one hand, love is going to be respectful, particularly respectful of those who are in authority over us, whether we speak of parents or professors or politicians. Fear God and honor the king. The Bible says love for a college student, a young man, means calling home to speak to mama more frequently than that college student might otherwise be inclined to do. Your newfound independence does not permit you the freedom to be rude to the family that spent 18 years getting you to the position of your independence. That would be rude, but love is polite. The Corinthians struggled with this at their fellowship meal where they partook of the Lord's table. The the wine and the bread were served and some people came hungry and they gobbled it all up. Even to the point of getting drunk. And others were left with nothing at the meal in chapter 11. And the Apostle Paul says, that's not what love is. You wait for one another. You serve one another. If you're hungry, go home and eat. Come back and enjoy the meal with others. But don't take it all for yourself. Love is a little thing. It's, it's polite. Remember your mom telling you, don't burp out loud at the dinner table? And you used to think, I mean, who really cares if I burp out loud at the dinner table? And then one day you sat down with a stranger and you were eating, and all they did was either burp or do something else that was nasty, and you couldn't enjoy your meal, and you remembered why it is that we're not to act this way? Because we're supposed to think to ourselves, your happiness is my heart's desire. How can I eat with you in such a way that you'll enjoy your meal? You see, love is a very little thing. Love, he says, is not rude. Now, that's a challenge for all of us. It's a challenge for missionaries. Those who go to faraway places and live in other cultures would, I'm sure, find it incredibly challenging to figure out what are the cultural expectations around here for the way that we should live together. And to learn not to be even unintentionally rude. So you might make that one more thing you add to your list of things to pray for missionaries as they learn the culture they're going to. But right here in the United States, we have to think about this too with regard to proclaiming the gospel. It has become an increasingly common thing for people to think that it's rude to talk to people about Jesus. That it's just rude to share the gospel. It's a thing that ought never to be done. How how dare you? That is so impolite and out of sorts. And, and, And here is where we need to be careful because it's possible for our culture's expectations of what's rude to be biblically wrong. We've got to share the good news of great joy with others. Though when we do that, we ought to try not to be rude as we do. And in the seventh place, the last thing I'll highlight, he says, what are the actions of love? Love, he says, does not insist on its own way. And so if our attitude is, I'm going to do what I want, whether you like it or not, but how dare you... (laughs) Do that to me, then we are not loving. Two lanes merge on a highway. Do you find yourself irritated, demonstrating by, oh, I don't know, just to take an example out of the blue, pulling up as close as possible to the bumper of the person in front of you in a dangerous way just so that they'll look in the rearview mirror and see how close you got? Because they were so rude as to cut in front of you? To speak hypothetically. Do any of you do that? What is it about us that says, please, you can get one car length ahead of me and beat me by one car length to the next turn off? Why do I insist I've got to have my way? Love is like this. It's two men walking in opposite directions on a narrow mountain path. And on one side of that path is a sheer precipice to certain death. And on the other side is a mountain rock wall. And the two men meet. And try as they might, dance as they try, they can't get past one another until one simply, quietly, without complaint, lays down on the path, and the other walks right over the top of it. Love lays down and doesn't mind getting walked on if it's going to benefit the other person because I haven't insisted on my own way. What will it take to do that? It will take dying to myself, to insisting on my rights And my privileges, I know when you picked your spouse, you thought, who do I like? Who will be comfortable to live with? Easy, fun to live with? Who um, is it just a great time to spend time with? Who's not too much trouble or going to cause me too much trouble? But did you ever think, who will I serve? who will I have to die for so that we can get along? That's what marriage is. That's what any tight community requires. Because if you live close to people, you'll discover that to love them, you have to give way. Well, this is some of what the Apostle Paul says, love is in action. And if you were like me, you discover that you don't love anybody very well at all except yourself. We might ask the question, how can I ever be loved like this and ever get this kind of love? Years ago, I asked Melina a question. We were up late one night and I turned to her and I said, sweetheart, why do you love me? But you understand that there were volumes of insecurity in that question. Right? Um, he's a little needy would you identify for me please what makes me so great that you love me she thought about it for a while and then she looked at me and she said something brilliant as she often does that has stuck with me well past a decade like it's yesterday she said to me Mainly because I choose to. I don't know if you can sense the sweetness of that to the heart. But my wife is saying to me, I choose to love you simply because I choose to love even the unlovely you. I don't have to keep up. I don't have to keep up with whatever it is I think first drew her to me so that I can prove myself to her so she won't leave She loves me because she decided to love me. And isn't that the way that God's love has worked? Do you know the beauty of that? Paul writes of it in Romans chapter 5 when he writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see what he's saying? His love, God's love, isn't based on the loveliness of its object. His love has just been the opposite. He loved us when we were enemies, when we were ungodly, when we didn't give a rip about him, when we were only self-interested, and yet he loved These extremely unlovely people. And he gave his son to restore us to himself. To put the love of Christ into our hearts. Because he chose to love us. Now that's how we've been loved. And that is how he calls us to love others. If you find in your heart unloveliness, then let that drive you. To the great lover of your soul who gave himself for you to work in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Let's pray. Jesus, we bless you that you are the lover of our soul that no one else could ever be. And I ask that you would humble us all under your mighty hand and raise us up to put on love for others who are unlovely like us, we pray in Jesus' name.